Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. And Norma, could you do me another big favor? Uh, could you start us off? <laughs> so, uh, my sobriety birthday is September 1st, 1997. Um, I am 21 years sober today. Um, which is why I accepted, too, because I was like, it was like kind of a big thing, you know. Um, my first living sober was 1997, um, and I can't believe I'm sober today. Um, <clears throat> back then, it was um, it was in July. It was a Fourth of July weekend, and I didn't stay sober. I mean, I, I drank a little bit more, had a little bit more research to do, um, but. Um, 21 years in like 10 minutes, it's quite a bit to do. It's a little daunting. So here it goes. Um, I, didn't, I didn't come into AA because I wanted to get sober. I came into AA because I didn't want to die. Um, I was 25 years old. Um, I was in the Castro, and I went into what is now some, the mix, but back then it was called Uncle Bert's. And... Um, and I didn't have any desire to drink. Like, I really didn't. I'd been coming in and out of AA. And at that time, I, I looked at myself in the mirror, <clears throat> and I saw nothing back. Like, I saw absolutely nothing. My reflection was empty. And I knew that in that moment, this was my life. I was 25 years old. Um, I hated myself. I hated the world. I had nothing left. Um, my mother had gone back to Mexico um, and had kind of like, given me her blessing and said, you know, que Dios te cuide, I'm gone. I'm, I'm done with you. And um, I had no friends. I had nobody. Um, and I knew that I was going to die. And I knew that was it. Um, I called Alcoholics Anonymous. My first time that I went to a meeting was when I was 18 years old. I knew that I had a problem with alcohol. Um, I sat down in a meeting, <clears throat> looked around, saw all white people, old white people, mind you, and I was like, this is definitely not for me. And I bailed. Um, and I went to a meeting in the hate. <clears throat> and it was still white people, mostly. It was, I was the only person of color in there. Um, but they were reading about this dude named Bill. And I was like, I don't know who Bill is. I don't know like, what his story is. I, you know. But this woman, um, who turned out to be my first sponsor, came up to me after the meeting and she said, you know, you are not crazy. You have something called alcoholism. And you never have to drink again. And that was such a novel concept, right? She later became my sponsor. And within <clears throat> literally like two-week period, she gave me the keys to her house, which I was like, white woman, you are crazy, right? Like, <laughs> like, like, do you know who I am? Like, seriously, like I'm from East L.A. Like, we just don't do that. Um, but she gave me her keys to her house, and she said to me, she says, I trust that you will do what it, you think is right, 
which I was like, I don't know what that means. Like, I really didn't. Like, I had no concept of, like, what does that mean? Um, and so that started kind of my journey. I'd like to say that I, you know, I, I hear people say, you know, I came in first meeting and I got sober and, you know, like had the spiritual awakening. I did not. That was not my story. I would go to meetings, talk about like, I mean, I literally would go to meetings, meet with my sponsor, go to the Lex, it's the old lesbian bar that used to be in the mission, go to the Lex, pick up on some random person, like, and then talk about how great the meeting was while I was downing shots of tequila. Like, that was, that's what I did, and doing coke, like, lines of coke. And I did that for a while. And then, um, I, we were still reading the book, and I realized there's, you know that part that talks about in the book that talks about how um, the man went, had the whole story about the man drinking whiskey in a glass of milk? Like, he had no desire to drink, but he ordered it, and it just kind of just happened. So I met the, I met the, um, in the Castro, and I'm waiting to, for my group, it was a, uh, it was a relapse prevention group that I was going to, and I'm waiting for my relapse prevention group uh, to start. And so I go to, um, to Harvey's, because that's where you would go to wait for your relapse prevention group to start, right? A bar. So I had to go to the bathroom. So I'm sitting there. And the bartender comes and asks me, will I, will I drink? And I said, I, you know, I think I'll have, you know, a cranberry juice. And you can add some vodka to that. And it just happened. I didn't want to drink. And I'm still thinking that I'm going to have this one drink, and I'm going to go to my relapse prevention group. Well, of course, that didn't happen. I ended up at Uncle Bert's, which was my uh, usual place to go. I woke up the next morning with a woman that had absolutely no teeth. Um, like she really was toothless, completely toothless. Um, and I did not know how I got there. And, um, and I realized in that moment that I really truly was powerless over alcohol and that I was that story. I was that story in the book. So I went to my home group, which was at high noon at that time, and I raised my hand as, an, as a newcomer again, and I haven't had a drink since. And so kind of like I – everything that they told – all the suggestions that they told us to do or, you know, don't get into a relationship and don't make big changes and, you know, easy does it. Like, yeah, all that kind of went out the window for me. I got into a relationship my first um, – I think I was like three days sober – and I got into a relationship with someone that was 13 years sober, which, yeah, because I thought that she could give me that part of that sobriety. Um, it didn't really quite work out that way. Um, but I stayed sober. Um, and we would go to meetings. We'd talk, you know, we'd go to meetings. We'd have sex and go to meetings. And I just wanted to get out of my body. Like, I didn't, you know, you had taken away my alcohol. You had taken away my drugs. I had cigarettes coffee and sex, right? And I used those quite a bit. Um, and at my, at my 30 days sober, or my 30 day chips, um, my mom came to visit me, and my mom had not, um, she, I had told my mother so many times that I had, was going to get sober and that it was going to be different. And she came, um, and she saw me get my 30 day chip. 
and she saw me get, the last trip she saw me get was um, my 13-year trip. And um, she died after that. Um, and here's the deal, is that things happen in life. Like, there's a part in the book that I love that ta- it's Bill, and Bill's talking, that guy again, right? Bill's talking, and he's talking about how if we fail to enlarge our, like, our spiritual life by, I believe it's, Something in self-sacrifice. I don't know. I can't remember exactly what that word is. But self-sacrifice. We will not be able to survive the trials and low spots ahead. And here's the thing. is The trials and low spots ahead, those are guaranteed. I thought that if I had gotten sober, because I got sober, I was no longer, and I was paying my taxes, I was being a good girlfriend, I was being a good daughter, and I was not stealing anymore, I wasn't beating people up anymore, I wasn't doing all the things I was used to do, then I should get a prize. So I kept waiting for my prize. And at about 10 years sober, I wasn't getting that prize. And so I was like, okay, well then, fuck you, right? And I got a lot of disappointment. And in that disappointment... Um, I became incredibly defiant. I became so defiant that I almost went out. And in my defiance, I realized that as I was cussing God out, and I was like, you know, rambling in pain and anger, it was probably one of the closest times that I've ever been to my higher power. Because however that connection is, I'm having a connection every single day, right? Um... I was able to find, you know, um, I got married in sobriety. I got married in 2004, and I've been married to the same woman for the last 14, almost 15 years, and that has not been easy. Um, for a long time, it was like if she would only do this, then I, my life would be great, and if she would only follow these simple rules that I have set forth, um, <laughs> then everything would be fine. Right, and the, what I realized is my sponsor did this this little thing with me. She said, "Okay, let's put the names of all your exes, right? Like, which was a lot, but like just the most meaningful ones, right?" And then she's like, "And put my name in the middle." And so she did, and she she said, "Okay, so this person did this." I'm like, "Yeah, they did. Like, they don't listen, right? If they just listen." And the common denominator was me in all of them. And then she started putting in random. She's like, so let's say you leave Marta and you bring in Sabrina. You bring in Mary. You bring in whoever. It's still you, right? It's still me. So the problem is not even a problem, but who I need to look at and change is me. And lo and behold, the minute that I actually, like, sat down and actually listened and paid attention and treated her as a human being who had wishes, desires, and needs... Like, things started shifting for us. Um, about, I would say, a couple years ago, actually, now three, three years ago, I decided I wanted to shift careers. And at this point, I'm in my 40s, and I wanted to shift careers and um, do something completely different. And with an incredible amount of fear, I went back to school and... Um, I studied to become a sign language interpreter. And I graduated, and now I'm a sign language interpreter. (laughs) Um, 
And I, like, I actually, people pay me to, the, to do this, right? And so here's my biggest challenge today, is that I was saying this at lunch, is that I think I'm faking everyone out, right? Because that part of me that still believes that I am nothing is still there, and that I have to fight it all the time, because I know that I'm not. I know that's not true, right? Like, I know that I know it's not true, but I wake up sometimes and I look at YouTube and I look at like videos, like signing videos to see if I understand them because I cannot believe that this is me. But here's the thing is that not, it was not given to me. I worked for it. I did the steps and I did step by step. And all of that was taught here. Like you guys taught me that. Like AA taught me that. Um, how to show up, how to show up on time. Right? My first sponsor, like, I was never on time. My first sponsor showed me how to, like, taught me how to show up on time, how to be trustworthy, how to, like, be present. And I got to do that. I get to, like, show up and be present for people and witness people in their, um, witness people in whatever place it is that, they're, that they are, have empathy, but be able to, let go of that and not take that on, if that makes any sense. All of that was here. I, there's no way I would have been able to do what I do today without all of this, without the lessons that I learned here. Um, I am beyond grateful that I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I am beyond grateful that I've been able to come to this meeting, this specifically this, this meeting, the POC meeting, since 1997. And, um, and that has continues to be here because I feel like it's such an important part where I get to just be like open up without any kind of, I don't want to offend, like, I don't know how to say this. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to offend them, whatever that is going to happen. Like, I, okay, so this is a perfect example. Um, I go into my job the other day, and the person that I'm the person that hired me. There's a deaf person. The person that hired me says, "Oh, Maria, I'm so glad that you're here." My name is not Maria. My name is Norma. Oh, well, you look like a Maria. Okay, I'm not quite sure what that means, but I actually look like a Norma because <laughs> that's been my name, right? And so then he proceeds to go on, and he's like, well, you know, I hope that you don't, like, you don't, it's not offensive, right? Like, I mean, you know, it's just a joke, right? Like, you know, it's just, you know, like, Mexican Maria, like, I'm like, and I'm like, you're just kind of digging, right? So at that point, it's like, I'm not my team, who is white, she's like, oh, yeah, you know, just, just ignore him. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, that's kind of the problem, though, Right? Like, that's kind of the problem, is that these micro, little microaggressions that happen every single day, every single fucking day, I mean, really every day, in one way or another, we're just supposed to ignore them. We're just supposed to pretend that they're not really there and that it's okay. And so what happens is at the end of the day, after many days, it's exhausting. I don't want to ignore it anymore. So at the end, I said, you know, I said, I know that you, that you think it's funny. I said, but it actually isn't. It actually is hurtful, and it makes an impact. My name is Norma. It was a pleasure working with you, and I hope to see you again.
And that was like, I left there and I was like, I felt actually proud of myself because I got to not be a bitch. I didn't have to be a bitch about it, but I got to say something. Simple, right? And impactful for me. Whether he got anything from it or not, that's not for me to like know or figure out. It's for me to just continue on, right? So um, I love my life. And one last thing, and I'm going to close, is that, so I've been, um, I graduated um, a year ago, and I am uh, currently on the Northern California Registry of Interpreters Board. Um, and we recently, um, some of my colleagues and I, created a Bay Area Interpreters of Color group where we are going to, our goal is to embrace and to bring in more interpreters of color. Our, most of, in my field, most of the interpreters are white, about 10% are people of color, and from that it just like breaks into all people of color. Um, and I get to be part of this. I get to be part of this organization that changes, that makes changes, that is going to make changes and bring more diversity. Like, I have no idea how this happened um, other than here, being here. And that I get to celebrate my birthday here, like at Living Sober. Like, how amazing is that? So anyways, with that, thank you. Thank you, Norma. That was beautiful. And thank you for reminding me I have a higher power. <laughs> All right. Um, so for the next speaker, we have Ray. My name is Raymond, and I am a alcoholic and addict. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm very nervous to speak. I'm always nervous to speak. And then I just, when I was walking up here and, and getting a coffee, and I thought, what did I get myself into? <laughs> but you know what? I learned not to say no to AA. And I lear I've learned that everything would be fine. It would be just the way it is supposed to be. So... Um, I'm really, really happy to be here. Uh, I actually did my first Western Wang Up Living Sober in 2005 uh, at the Bill Graham Auditorium. There was that, that you know, back, way back, right? Um, and that gives you uh, my first sobriety date, which is in 2005. Um, I, I, I relapsed. Relapse is a huge part of my story. Um, I, I drink, uh, I, uh, I do a lot of substances, um, and, um, um, and those are my outlets uh, before to uh, cope with all the fears and um, discomfort under my own skin, um, and also especially uh, around me being uh, gay and me being an Asian person. Um, but then today, like in uh, in a program, I've learned to be um, to be okay with with this, you know, and be happy that um, I'm born as an Asian and I'm born as a gay person. Especially in San Francisco, is very important. So, um, I'm just a little bit of background. Uh, 
my sobriety date, the second one, which is the most updated one, is October 31st, 2017. So yesterday I have 10 months. Um, really happy to spend my 10 months here in, in the convention. Um, I was born in Macau. Anyone know where Macau is? It's right next to Hong Kong. So it's almost like San Jose and San Francisco, basically the distance. Just to give you a reference point. But the only, me, the only uh, transportation through, from these two places are by boat. Now they have helicopter, right? And it's 20 minutes. But then by boat is one hour. Um, earlier on, I knew I was gay. I remember um, I was given a dictionary when I was a kid. And the dictionary is Chinese to English. And the, at the back of the dictionary, it has a picture of a naked woman and a man. And there were just, you know, English words and Chinese words about their body parts. And I always, always would look at the men. <laughs> and um, so earlier on, I knew I was gay. Um, my real name is Chi Young, and that is my real Chinese name. Um, Raymond was the name that I chose when I entered English school. And there were three names given to me back then. It was like third grade. And it was James, George, and Raymond. So I remember when I saw the three names by my teacher, I chose James. Uh, no, I chose, I chose George. Um, and then my mom said, no, 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 that, 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 that sounds unstable. And then I said, okay, I'm going to go for James. And then my teacher said, no, 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 people are going to laugh at you because they're going to call you James Bond. So Raymond was my last choice, and I didn't want it. But then I'm happy to have, to have Raymond right now because Raymond really shaped my life. All the using, all the recovery is under the name Raymond. So it's actually me. So you guys can call me Raymond. Um, I was always bully when I was in school. I was skinny. I didn't do sports. You know, I was feminine when in school. Um, so I was always bullied. Um, I came to the U.S. when I turned 13 um, with my parents and my sister. And we um, started our life in Texas, Houston. And... At that time, I got bullied again during junior high. Remember that song that people always say, Chinese, Japanese, look at this, uh, want to see, look at this? That, that's the theme song for me throughout my junior high. Um, after a month being here, my parents didn't like it here, so they left, and they left me with my grandparents. And since then, I've been living apart from my parents. I'm 45 right now, so all these years, I've been living by myself. And my sister was with me three years, and she couldn't really stay in America, so she went back. So after that, I moved here to California, and then I went to school in San Leandro. Um, I graduated from San Leandro. And then I went back, I went back to Macau after I graduated from high school because I wanted to be a singer. 
like singing is a huge part of my life because all that bullying, all that loneliness, when I was living by myself, the only thing I have was singing. So I was singing all the time. I was in choir. I was doing, you know, school performances. I mean, I could really find myself there. Um, so I went back to Macau and trying to be a singer. Very discouraging. I try out a lot of places. I went to movie uh, um, theaters or movie company for for uh, an audition. And the first thing they told me is that, you're not cute. Why are you here? It was so... It was so discouraging, and as a young kid, I was so depressed. And during that time, I started drinking. I drank so much because it was so painful to deal with that. I thought I have a dream, and I want to pursue it, and then I couldn't get it. I started drinking, and my drinking, I love, I love, people have DUI, I have SUI, singing under influence. You know, cover okay four times a week, four times a week, drinking until 5, 6 a.m., got home, shower, go back to my college in Macau, and went to school. And I remember I, one, a couple of times during exam, I walked down the aisle, and people were like, oh, you smell like beer. Like, it was so embarrassing. But I got through college somehow. I got through college. And then I knew, I knew I couldn't be a singer, and I decided not to be a singer or an actor. So I really, really trying to pursue my education. So I moved, actually, I moved to Europe. I moved to Europe, and then I pursued my master's degree in international business. And by then, my drinking really took off. European drinking, beer, Every day, every night, drunk, drunk every night. But I get through school somehow, by the grace of God, I did. <laughs> I did. I did get through school. So after my master's degree, I moved back to the U.S. And, um, um, and then I finally lived in San Francisco, and that was 97. Um, I got introduced to uh, substances, you know, ecstasy, Special K, and then later on, crystal meth, which is the drug of choice, which affect my life a lot. Um, it's pretty much the same story as a lot of people, you know, like just using substances, um, being a liar, being a cheater, being a manipulator, and just constantly just sex, Sex, drugs, sex, drugs, like all the time, right? That's pretty much I've heard from the rooms, you know, people would do. And same as me, I did it. I did a lot. Uh, 2005, I got sober. And I got, I went to rehab. And I really liked the sobriety the first time. I got a, so, I got a, a sponsor. And after a year, which people said, don't date in one year, and then right after one year I date, started dating. I, I met my first partner, and then very quickly, my higher power was my partner. I spent so much time with him. Um, 
I started to step away from the meetings. I started to not doing any fellowship. Like I find myself coming into the meeting, sitting at the back, or like five minutes before the meeting started, I'll come in and I'll leave five minutes before the meeting stop. I will go away because I did not want to talk to anyone. I just feel like it was just a transaction for me. Like, because I have my boyfriend, I have my life. You know, I have my life. I have a boyfriend, and I have a job and everything. So I was really happy, um, but that it didn't go well because my partner relapsed. Right, right after he relapsed, I just, I just, I just relapsed because I have nothing to hold on to. My my program was zero. It was nothing. Like, I know, I, I, I get what you guys were saying, but then I wasn't really embracing it inside. I wasn't doing any program. Um, so, I relapsed. And that four-year relapse, I did shit happen. Like, shit happened. I got arrested in Canada for drug trafficking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they opened my suitcase and there was like drugs everywhere, syringes, and then they were like, "Mr. Kong, put your hands up. You're under arrest." You know, blackout driving all the way from San Francisco, San Francisco, uh, from San Jose back to San Francisco for six hours. Did not know where I was driving to. I think at one point I was. I remember going on 101, and then I end up on Bay Bridge. And then on Braybridge, I ended up on 280, and then went back home. I did not know what I did. Um, I almost killed myself by blackout driving in LA, driving up to the mountain. And then I remember I had to pee. I opened the door, and without parking my car, my car went all the way down to the to the to the bottom of the mountain. Total. So those are really, really scary episodes that I have. And there's a number, a lot, a lot, a lot more, a lot more episodes that actually have, could have killed me, you know. But I'm still standing here, and there is a power greater than me. It has to be. Because with, without that, I wouldn't be here. Um, my last scary episode which brought me down uh, brought me back to the meeting it was 10 months ago I, I burned down my house in Glen Park and I lost everything I lost everything and I was using I was hooking up with someone and just didn't even know the fire was going on and then by the time one third of the house was burning I finally realized but it was too late for us I rushed out I jumped over the fire to the backyard naked I burned myself on my foot and my back and my friend I could clearly heard him saying ouch and that was the last word I heard from him. He died at my house. My dog, Romeo, he was the last living thing that I talked to because at the end of my using, all my friends left me. No one, no one wanted to talk to me. 
he died with my friend at the house. I was homeless. I remember, I felt like the only place I was walking on the street. It's really, first of all, it's really hard to be homeless because you have nothing to do. First of all, and you have to find time, and you have to find a place that is warm enough for you to to be on the street and be safe. The only safe place that I knew that would keep me comfort. It was in front of CCC, the Castro Country Club. I spent my night in front of that bench, cold, very cold. There's some lady walking by me. She said it was 3 a.m. She said, "I'm going to give you my jacket." I was. Opening my eyes, and I looked at her, and I said, "This jacket is just too small. It wouldn't even fit me." <laughs> and she said, "Yeah, but it's actually perfect on your knees." I cried. I cried in front of her, and I was so thankful. One morning, I got up. I looked at Castro Country Club. It's open. I went up there and I seek for help, and that was the end of me being homeless and the end of me being using. And I owed it to Castro Country Club. I go there almost every day to get a coffee, to say hi to people. Just being there makes me happy, makes me safe, and makes me comfortable, and makes me realize that. I need to stay sober for myself and for my dog and for my friend. Because if if I don't stay sober, I will feel really, really, really fucking guilty that what I did. But if I stay sober, I feel like there's a chance that they're gonna forgive me. They're gonna forgive me. Anyway, thank you so much for your attention, and thank you for so much for letting me share. Thank you. Thank you, Raymond. That was very exciting. <laughs> um, next, we have Erica. Hi, my name is Erica, and I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Those were too hard uh, to follow, but I'm going to try my best. I'm really nervous, um, but let's see. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to start with this. Okay, so um, this is my second attempt at uh, being sober. So my sobriety date is August the fourth of 2017. Um, the other time before that, um, I was sober for about two and a half years, which was in 2004 through 2006 until the middle of 2006. But the only difference between the two was 
I didn't have this. I didn't have a program. I wasn't going to meetings. I just quit. Um, and it's a lot different. I mean, I, I've, you know, I've really, like, spent a lot of time comparing, you know, because, I mean, it was great when I, when I did it the first time because I quit math. Math was my poison. I mean, I would do other things, too. I mean, um, but the difference is I have this, you know. Um, I go to fellowship. I have commitments. Um, and I'm accountable because I was that bitch that was not accountable. I'd make plans with you, and when the time came, you know, I wouldn't answer my phone. I'd be in my place and not, you know, answer the door or just, you know, avoid people. And since this stretch of sobriety that I have now, I'm accountable. I show up. I speak up. Um, I don't step back or, you know, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, like here, um, I got, I've had so many, 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 I mean, just blessings this time around, and they still keep coming. Um, and I owe that for all of this, I do. But so to give you a little bio of myself, so I'm a native of San Francisco. I was born in Carmel. I'm 51 years old. I just celebrated my 51st birthday on, in July. Um, I grew up in the Richmond district here uh, in San Francisco. I had, I mean, I come from an okay family. We were middle class, big Filipino family. I'm half Filipino, half Japanese. Um, didn't really have any interaction with the Japanese side of my family because um, my grandparents kind of disowned my mother when she decided to marry my father. Um, my father was her second marriage. Her first marriage was with a German soldier, and that's how she ended up here in the States. So when she left him and then decided to marry a Filipino man, my, my grandparents dust. So they never spoke for many years. Um, and my grandparents were my parents because my parents were going to put me up for adoption. And when my grandparents heard that, they said, no, we'll take over. So three weeks after I was born, my grandmother took over. My mom was in my life, just like, you know, she'd call me on birthdays, or I would go on the weekends to visit. Um, they had a, she had a house in Marina, um, out in Monterey, and, um, um, but she died when I was eight. She died of cancer. Um, my father was just not really, you know, whatever. He'd blow in. He'd come and, he'd come and visit my grandparents, but my grandparents were my parents. My grandmother was my rock. Um, let me see. So growing up, because I was very feminine, I was always very feminine, I hung out with my girl cousins and everything and wanted to do girly things, wanted to play high jump, you know, hopscotch, whatever, all that type of shit. So all my guy cousins and my uncles and even some of my aunts were really mean to me growing up, really mean to me. And it really used to mess with my head, you know. And because my grandparents decided to raise me, um, my other aunts and uncles, you know, kind of took offense to it. So they were always so mean to me growing up. And always giving my grandmother and my grandfather shit. Every little thing, I was always under a microscope. You know, every little thing that I did was like never enough or, you know, so awful and everything. And it really, it fucked me up growing up. I have to be honest with you. But I started leaving home when I was 13 because I really honestly believed 
that my grandparents would live longer if I wasn't there. Because my grandmother would get so, it would really hurt her. And my grandfather would get upset. So I started leaving home when I was 13. And then I would come back. I would disappear for like maybe three to six months at a time. But I was close by. I was hanging out with my friends that lived down the street. Um, and, you know, um, I would meet my aunt once a week. She'd give me cash. And I still went to school. I didn't drop out of school. I stayed in school. But um, after a trip to the Philippines with my grandmother, it was her last trip to go to the Philippines. Um, when we got back, my, uh, my friends called me, and they were dressing up and going to this old club. I don't know. You, all of you look kind of young, but I'm sure you won't remember. There was an after-hours club that was here in San Francisco called Studio West, Okay. So they were dressing up and going to this club, and they were all like, hey, 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 come on, come. And I hadn't even unpacked, so I went, and then I disappeared for a year, and that's where Erica was born. So it just kind of went from there. So um, at 15, I kind of grew up in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, and, you know, to be, I mean, at that time, I mean, my role models, I mean, now, nowadays, you have, like, so many positive transgender role models, you know, to look up to, but back then, it was the prettiest, I mean, the most fishiest ones that were making the most paper on the corner. That's who I had to look up to. Those were my role models, so I, I you know, I ran off with it, you know what I mean? I started hormones when I was 16, um, and grew up in the tenderloin, hustling, hustling, and it hustled until I was 50 years old. Okay, so, um, I mean, just that whole scene, it's kind of progressed. I mean, I was a street walker in the tenderloin, and then everything went online, but um, <laughs> the internet, there we go. Um, but I mean, it's, oh my God, the drug use and the drinking and everything. I mean, I was doing drugs. I mean, the first time I did drugs was when I was 13 and it was acid. Then was weed. And then there was beer. And then later on, I moved on to MDMA and quaaludes. And I, the only drug I didn't do was heroin. And, you know, but I did them all for all those years. And when I decided to go on this second journey, I mean, it's, I was living in the South Bay, and I was in a nice hotel, and it was my birthday, and I was alone, and I was, like, you know, watching TV, eating a piece of cake, and holding a water bong in my hand, and I was, there was, like, a big mirror in the room, and I just looked at it, and I said, girl, uh-uh, this ain't cute no more. Girl, you know what I mean? It's just not cute, you know? <laughs> and I mean... Someone, I mean, someone planted the seed in my head a long, long time ago. Uh, when, when, I was, when I was 40, uh, someone that had graduated from Walden House. I'm a graduate of Walden House. Um, and it kind of resonated, but when, you know, when you're surrounded with people that are all using, you know what I mean? It's like a year, I mean, a, a year ago from today, oh, no, a little over a year ago, because now I'm approaching 13 months. So um, I would have never thought I would be here you know, I really didn't think I had no escape. I was, you know, all I knew was I was going to be hooking and I was going to be doing math. You know what I mean? And now, I mean, I have a different kind of love for myself that I never even knew I had. You know what I mean? Um, and I get to, you know, my, I have a good job. So I did six months in Walden House. 
And after I graduated and I moved into an SLE, um, I got this really great job where I get to work with my community. Because I work with transgender um, women, uh, 18, and uh, trans women of color. And um, it's a, you know, they're struggling, you know what I mean? And I get to help this community, my community. Um, and I mean, it's like one of my participants in my study, I got to, you know, accompany her and got her into Walden House. Um, I invite a lot of the women that I work with to meetings, you know, some of them come to the meetings that I go to um, because like, you know, a couple of them, they just quit. And I go, you can't just quit. You have to have something else. Just quitting is not enough, you know what I mean? And so I invite them to meetings. And for me, it's a beautiful thing, you know what I mean? Because, I mean, if I can help a girl, a young transgender girl, make the right choices, because there's so many opportunities for us now. We're not like, it's not like, you know, taboo and everything like that. You can make your mark. And, you know, for me, that's where I'm at. I don't want to be remembered. If I were to die tomorrow, I wouldn't want to be remembered for what I was, that fishy queen. She used to dress nice. She used to make a lot of money, knew how to party. That's no. I want to make my mark in life. And I mean, yeah, I'm 51, but I have a spark in me that I refuse to let go dim. I love my life. You know, I love my sobriety. My, my hands are crazy glued to my chair. I ain't letting it go. I mean, I deal with a lot. This last year, I've dealt with a lot. Death, okay? And my job is really hard. It's stressful. And our medical coverage doesn't give us therapy. So we have to pay out of pocket. So it's kind of a... But I'm able to do it. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't know how I'm able to do it. I don't have any triggers. I work... I'm in the field because I have to go to San Francisco. I work in Oakland. Um, and I'm out there, and I, you know, I'm working with these people that I used to party with, you know, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to plant that seed and, you know, let them... Every, I think everyone deserves a chance at living a first-class life, you know what I mean? And if you were living that life before, I mean, you have to... I mean, for me, I have to let them know that you have a shot at it. You just got to want it. You know what I mean? And I really want it. You know, like, I, I'm dealing with death, relapse. I mean, my tribe, my small tribe, both of them have relapsed twice. You know what I mean? And it's hard, you know what I mean? Because those were my Cody's, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, those were my go-tos, you know, when I was in program and when I got out. But, I, you know, for me, it's like, I got to put myself first. You know what I mean? And, I mean, if I don't, I'll go out, you know what I mean? It's like, normally I'm that person, like when my friends call, you know what I mean? I drop whatever I'm doing and I'm there to help them, whether if it's good or not, I'm there because you're my, you know, you're my friend, you know what I mean? But I can't do that, you know what I mean? It's like, I've been learning, oh God, how could I put this the right way? When I've set up, when I just, when I ventured on to this journey, okay, I'm starting to realize it was only for me, and only me, and everything else, all the people that I come, you know, come across, that I grow very fond of, and things change, you know what I mean? It's, the people that I meet are either going to compliment my journey or just be a page in my book. It's pretty much what it is. But I have to keep pushing. I have to keep moving forward. I mean, I just, I'm old, 
you know, I have no, I have no resiliency to, you know, relapse and fuck up. I'm too old, you know what I mean? And um, I don't want to, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm really doing good, and I'm focused, and I mean, one minute? Oh, really? That quick? Okay, good. Well, I'm just going to close with that. I hope you guys got something from that. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.